every every time that I give a new talk, I begin with this time I will really stick to my topic. But and it never happens, no, but what I mean is I will not, of course, stick to the topic of political economy, etc. But I will talk about the problem of drawing the right line of division today. Why? Let me begin with a biological topic. Why do baboons have big, protruding, hairless, red butts? Asses, I mean, no? The main reason is that the buttocks of a female in heat will swell, so the male knows that she is ready to mate. And I think that hearing, participating in all these polemics within whatever remains of the left today, more and more, Leftist intellectuals do remind me of this baboon, and they are displaying their buttocks, whose buttocks is larger, and so on, and so on. Uh, 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 why? Because I think that especially today, it's important to learn to distinguish uh, false, li false lines of division, false opposition from those, the lines which really divide us. Why? Again, uh, an example that I think I already used once. Think about today's big international art biennales. I noticed two things about them. First, they are the big capitalist enterprise. But did you notice how ideologically almost all of them, especially the curators who wrote the introductory note, justify them in some kind of pseudo-anti-capitalist Marxist terms. Now, the usual way you say is that uh, we, live, uh, uh, we live in a uh, time of global machinery and uh, capitalist machinery, and we are all part of it, how to acquire critical distance, and so on and so on. So the irony is that they even admitted that they are part, but they think that if you add some kind of general reflection against commodification or whatever, that it helps you. No, it doesn't help you. I mean, here we should return to them the Marx Brothers saying, you know, why are you saying that you are part of capitalist machinery when you really are part of capitalist machinery? They are, totally. And I, again, here I'm quite merciless. I think that if there is an artist who is fully the emblem, symbol of today's capitalism is Damien Hirst. Yes. Absolutely, thousand percent. I mean, first, uh, I read in an article on him, uh, the way he, how carefully it was planned, his type of work. His problem was how to address these new nouveau digital capitalists and so on, who want something which looks provocative, modern, but still figurative enough to cause a provocation with a little bit of sex, violence, and so on and so on. It was, it was so, carefully, uh, so carefully planned. So what I'm saying is that <clears throat> with this kind of permanent anti-capitalist opposition, which is, of course, at the same time penetrated by an absolute logic of suspicion, but which is not productive, which immobilizes you. Like, my God, whenever I give a talk, there is one idiot who says, but, but you are kind of a star. You are Elvis of whatever, cultural theory. <laughs> but don't you think that you are also caught in this machinery now, that even if you criticize capital, you are part of it, and so on and so on. 
you know, all this universalized suspicion, I think, just immobilizes us. I think if you have something critical to say, don't worry about will it be appropriated and so on, just do it. If it will work, it will work. If not, it will not. But I must say that with all these ideological denegations, I find refreshing to, to find someone like Robert Pippin, the center, even maybe center-right American liberal Hegelian, who, is one of, who in one of his last books openly put as his goal the reassertion of bourgeois way of life, of bourgeois values. Now, I find this extremely refreshing, that there is the guy who openly calls for the impossible. And as it's usual, the result is much more subversive than most of the leftist stuff. When he inquires into how to assert bourgeois values of decency, uh, equality, freedom today, he finds so many inherent inconsistencies. For example, you should read, I've actually told you here, one of his last books, Pippin's, a short book, I forgot the title, on Western. My God, it's more Marxist than many proclaimed Marxists. He simply shows that the central topic of Westerns is this passage from pre-rule of law to the bourgeois rule of law society. And his point is how? The message of Westerns is that this passage itself is always illegal, includes a, viol a violation of law, which is a necessary one and remains all the time in bourgeois society and so on and so on. So uh, I think that when we are dealing with this type of thinking, by this I mean the standard leftist thinking. I think it's, don't be fascinated by it. Look for what? Look for something which sticks out. In what sense? Now comes the dirty detail, then we go into real work. Recently, I met at a meeting in the United States a voluptuous lady from Portugal, like a slightly overweight but very attractive. You will see why. And she told me, a wonderful anecdote. She told me that her last lover, when he saw her for the first time fully naked, he told her that with just one or two kilos less weight, her body would have been perfect. And I told her, now you have a chance to learn Lacanian theory. <laughs> because uh, the truth is that what would have happened if she were effectively to lose one or two kilos, I claim she would precisely no longer be attractive. She would be too skinned or whatever. You see the paradox. You experience something as a detail which disturbs perfection. Like it's a little bit too much. Without that, you would have been perfect. But take the disturbing surplus away, and you don't get perfection. You get just nothing. So you see the paradox. You add something which appeared to disturb perfection, but this very addition creates, creates it. And that's the problem with politics. How? Now, real talk. Uh, I read recently a book by, I'm afraid uh, how to pronounce the name, Paul F-U-S-S-E-L-L. The guy, okay, Paul Fusil, I will... Fussel, sorry, sorry. Uh, 
The Great War and Modern Memory. Of course, I enjoyed the book. Uh, and why is it so interesting? First, it shows it's really a good lesson in ideological mechanisms. It shows how precisely because the Great War, World War I, was such a shock, unthinkable happened and so on, unthinkable for our European awareness, of course, how in order to cope with it, each nation had to resuscitate old, ancient, uh, 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 ideological myths. For example, do you know that to cope with the experience of trench warfare and so on, uh, the basic metaphor became wasteland from the Grail, uh, 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 Knights of the Round Table legend. As if trenches are a new form of wasteland, our soldiers there are new knights searching for the Grail and so on and so on. <laughs> uh, 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 now, uh, what, but what interests me is something else how the Great War triggered an explosion of interpretive paranoia. Why? Uh, for example, on the British side, the problem was how to account for the embarrassing fact that so many failures occurred on the British side. For example, they noticed that uh, when they, their offensives in Belgium, which was covered by British army, their offensives failed, and also the German guns bombing their positions usually hit their targets very precisely. So how could this have happened? Here comes my guy. Reginald Grant, he published already during the war a book called SOS. It's ideological paranoia at its best. Grant's problem is a simple one. He simply cannot believe that Germans can be as astute as they are in locating the targets for their artillery across the enemy line. So the only solution was for him that they must have informers. Now, British are patriotic. It cannot be the British. It must have been the Belgian farmers behind uh, the lines. So. Uh, he enumerates, and it reads as a wonderful paranoia, a whole series of ways how Belgian farmers with pro-German sentiments were informing, signaling German artillery where there are the British targets. One is, and I love this one, it's the uh, windmills which all of a sudden start to turn in the wrong direction. You know why? Did you see Hitchcock's foreign correspondent? It's the most famous scene, you know, where uh, the guy, the good guy, goes into the countryside and just an idyllic countryside with windmills, and then I think he or his companion says, but look, that mill is turning. So this was a paranoia there. So this was the first idea. Uh, then the second uh, was that the our hands on local church towers are set in out of sync with the actual time. So that if you have a church tower and you have the clock up there, no. So if it's 12, but the church tower says quarter past 12, this is a signal to Germans where. And the third one, the most interesting one, when Belgian housewives hang their laundry to dry on the ropes in front of their houses, 
this disposition of the colors of the laundry, like two white shirts, then a blue one, <laughs> signal to Germans. No? Uh, of course, this was paranoia. But on the other hand, I claim that it's too simple to simply dismiss paranoia we, uh, today. And the problem is precisely how to distinguish, to put it in very naive term, good from bad, right from <laughs> wrong paranoia. Because I remember a simple experience that I once had. I was visiting some friends uh, uh, on a beach in a Mediterranean country, and then these friends, kind of naive leftists, wanted to show me how everything is not industrialized today, how there still is authentic artisanal, artisanal handwork and so on. So they showed me on a beach alone fishermen repairing a network. The idea was to demonstrate, again, traditional labor grounded in ancient experience and wisdom, you know alone fishermen doing the net. But my reaction was, what if what I saw in front of me was a stage authenticity, a spectacle made to impress tourists, like, you know, preparing fresh food in department stores and so on. What if, if I were to get too close to the network, uh, I mean, fishing network, I would have noticed somewhere a small sign made in China, and then I would have noticed that this authentic fisherman was just mimicking productive gestures, you know. And uh, uh, now comes the shock of my life. I did this, and I was right. It was. And my friend was so embarrassed, he didn't notice it. You know, I think this was in South Portugal, you know. Tourist agency said it adds to a flavor, you know, they cannot compare in luxury with French beaches or what. So they decided, local tourist board, let's add a touch of authenticity, you know. Let's hire an unemployed guy to pretend there to, to create <laughs> the right atmosphere. But of course, my paranoia was then, what if he is, because we were in south of Portugal, what if the way he is weaving it, he's signaling to African immigrants, you know, like to, the way that, that would be my idea of my universe, no? Okay, but now I come to the real reason of telling this story. This is for me non-ideology, although it's totally mythical. I'm again referring to that book, uh, 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 The Great War and Modern M Memory, the most brilliant hallucinatory legend of the Great War was a persistent rumor which circulated on both sides, British, French, and uh, German. The rumor was that somewhere in the no man's land between the trenches of the front lines, you know, they were divided by usually some half a mile or at least three, four hundred yards, no man's land, in this desolate wasteland of scorched earth full of rotting corpses, holes full of water made by artillery explo uh, explosions, abandoned trenches, caves and tunnels, that in this area gangs of half-crazy deserters live. The idea was we are not alone, it's ju not just us and enemies, that there is a whole mythical life going on there gangs composed of members of all participating armies and nations, Germans, French, British, Australians, Poles, Croat, Belgians, Italians. They lived their hidden lives 
in some abandoned tunnel, tunnels in between life of friendship and peace, avoiding detection, <laughs> helping each other. Living in wrecks with lone beards, they never allowed to be seen. From time to time, one just heard their crazy shouts and songs. They came out of their subterranean netherworld only during the night after a battle in order to scavenge the corpses and collect water and food. I think this is a beautiful emancipatory myth. They were the only Leninists there. The beauty of this legend is that it clearly describes a kind of alternate, alternate community, a great no to the madness going on above on the battlefield, a group in which members of the warring nations live in peace with each other, the only enemy being war itself. While they may appear as an image of war at its most crazy, outcasts living a wild life, they are simultaneously the self-negation of war, literally an island of peace between the front lines, the emergence of universal fraternity that ignores these lines. Precisely by ignoring the official lines of division between us and them, they stand for the real division, the one that matters. They stand for the negation of the entire space of imperialist warfare. And so when people ask me, but isn't everything ideology? How can you distinguish ideology from non-ideology? I will tell them, no, it's easy, you see. Although this is clearly a myth, who knows what went on in reality. But they claim this crazy hallucination is an element of non-ideology. Because no matter if it's, it doesn't matter if it's invented or not, the message is clear. The war we are fighting is a false war. It's not our war. The truth is in fraternity of all of us and so on and so on. Uh, and again, so we need something like this today to discern true division in the confusion of secondary struggles. Let me give you another extreme case of such false struggle. Recently, I read a text on the ideological struggle in Peru at the time of the Shining Path, Sendero Luminoso Rebellion. On the one hand, there was Shining Path, Sendero Luminoso. Their identity was educational. Even their most brutal violence had the purpose of educating people about the revolution, about the state, about the impending collapse of the state, and so on and so on. Of course, this education was utterly authoritarian, exerted by those who believed they possessed the truth, they usurped the right to have absolute power over their students. But even more depressive is gover was government's counter-strategy a strategy of pure political demobilization and demoralization. I think in a perverted way, they were very wise. You know how the government, Fujimori government, countered the Sendero Vinozo offensive? The press, controlled or manipulated by the state power, actively promoted what analysts called mean world syndrome. The government solicited with easy credits and so on, an explosion of what they called prensa chica, I think, tabloid newspapers specializing in celebrity gossip, crime stories and so on, plus 
TV talk shows that focused on real cases of drug addiction, family violence, adultery, and so on. The goal of this strategy was to socially immobilize people through fear, to atomize the public sphere. So the message rendered was that the world is a dangerous place in which all one can do is look out for oneself, since there is no hope for solidarity, just envy of the rich and famous, and pleasure at their troubles. I think rarely in modern history was the ideological space of a country so neatly divided into, on the one hand, totalitarian educationalism, and there are many wonderful jokes at this level, I was told, in Peru, like the idea was that they were preaching so much when Sendero Luminoso captured a traitor or whatever. They were preaching so much that after three, four hours, you said, shoot me, shoot me, just so that I don't have to listen more to your... And, but then, how, how those in power, isn't this terrifying, how they replied to it? Not through some liberal, freedom-loving elaborations, but with this utter decadence, this, you know, with, with yellow, yellow press was literally the political answer to it. Yellow press as directly, directly intended to function as, as uh, an instrument of political demobilization. Now, this is, again, a situation where I think, why do I mention this opposition? Because there is simply no place for authentic emancipatory politics here. It's a pretty desperate situation. There is, a no now comes a more problematic point. I just want to provoke you a little bit. Because there is another false struggle going on today, I claim. And this will be very problematic maybe for you if I say this. It concerns the status of anti-Semitism and Zionism today. For some pro-Muslim leftists, Zionism is the exemplary case of today's neocolonial racism, which is why the Palestinian struggle against Israel is the paradigm for all other anti-racist and anti-imperialist struggles. In a strictly inverted way, for some Zionists, anti-Semitism, which for them lurks in every critique of Zionism, is the exemplary case of today's racism. These are, of course, two radically opposed positions. But what they share is that, in both cases, Zionism or anti-Semitism is a particular form of racism which colors all others. So that the true test of anti-racism today is to fight anti-Semitism or to fight Zionism. The idea is, for example, a Zionist would tell you, ah, if you don't see anti-Semitism as the crucial danger today, you are not truly anti-racist. Or an anti-Zionist would tell you, if you don't strictly oppose Israeli politics on the West Bank, then you are not truly anti-imperialist. Now, of course, I, at a certain level, agree with both sides. First, I think, not in Arab countries, but in Western Europe, Anti-Semitism is well and alive. Look at Hungary and so on, and some other countries. And of course, the uh, Palestinian struggle against Israel's state has to be totally supported. I mean, I hope 
all I can tell you is that uh, I am paying the price for it, in the sense that I was, as maybe some of you know, I was twice in the last two years attacked, not only as anti-Semitic, but once by Adam Kirsch, then by John Gray, as openly, directly laying the foundations for a new Holocaust. It beats me how this works. I mean, but you can really say anything today. Uh, what I'm saying is that, but nonetheless, I think that, uh, I think that uh, I, of course, anti-Semitism is dangerous and so on and so on. But I simply don't think that anti-Semitism is today the predominant form of racism. So I disagree with this aspect. But I also disagree with the opposite approach that the Palestinian struggle is, as it were, the symbol, the absolute symbol of anti-imperialist struggle. That this is the testing moment. Uh, why not? Because, again, my position is that the true view of the Palestinian conflict is that precisely Israel, and this is for me a much harsher criticism than the usual one, that precisely what Israel is doing is not some primordial crime. It's just another case of cheap, ordinary neocolonialism. I think it's much harsher if we reject Israeli politics in this way, to deprive them of this status of some arch criminals, the symbol of today's oppression. No, it's just, it's just pretty cheap, vulgar, precisely this has to be emphasized, vulgar, ordinary neo-colonialism. Uh, so again, uh, of course we should support Palestine. Can we make a vote who is uh, uh, provoked by that statement and who is not? I'm not provoked by that. Yeah, perfect, but then you are an exception because, again, mostly I get attacked, and I think this is a sign, a good sign that I'm on the right way. I get usually attacked from both sides, you know. Like, uh, the, as already maybe mentioned here, one and the same book, Welcome to the Desert of the Real, was attacked in Jerusalem Post. Okay, this is not a great thing. They are crazy, right? But was attacked as, <laughs> as, uh, as, as, as brutally, openly anti-Semitic. Okay, but the same book an Egyptian friend told me was attacked in Al-Ahram as the most perfidious Zionist propaganda. <laughs> it, no, it's not that I'm an opportunist and they say one thing. No, the same book, the same short book. I mean, as Sartre already said, this is a sign that maybe I'm on the right path, you know, where you are attacked from both sides. Okay, so, but let me go on so that I don't get, uh, so that, uh, uh, so that, no, uh, okay, let me put it in another way. You know why one has to be, okay, I will go and please interrupt me if you want. Maybe I'm wrong here, I'm open, but what I find difficult and wrong concerning the Middle East topic, uh, 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 some form of pro-Palestinian propaganda goes for me a little bit too far. No, I'm for always for going to the end. I don't have a problem with going, but too far precisely in the wrong direction when uh, I think that one, we should stick to one axiom. The Palestinian struggle should absolutely unconditionally appeal to the solidarity with whatever we call them anti-Zionist progressive Israelis. 
The moment we drop this, the moment we formulate it as a simple, clear ethnic struggle of Palestinians against Jews, then we should kill ourselves, then emancipatory struggles. This universal dimension must absolutely remain there. Which means, uh, uh, let me repeat you a story, maybe I already used it here. Where do I see this limitation? When I visited Jerusalem Film Festival four years ago, I obeyed all the rules of boycott and so on. I paid, together with my friend Udi Aloni, he contributed something, I paid my own ticket, my own hotel, and he emphasized that I am there as his personal guest, not as part of the Jerusalem Film Festival. And there were still open letters accusing me of, uh, of, uh, co of collaborating with uh, uh, Zionism and so on and so on. But then uh, some lady attacked me there, claiming, are you aware that you being here in Jerusalem is the same as visiting Berlin in 1930s. And okay, I gave her an answer which I think was a nice one. Let's, okay, let's draw this parallel to the end and let's imagine this situation. What would have been the situation? I was there in Jerusalem supporting a film which was absurdly openly pro-Palestinian, Udi Aloni's uh, uh, forgiveness. Okay, imagine the same situation in Germany. Fuck you, if I were to be invited in 37 to Berlin, to propagate a pro-Jewish pro film, defending Jews, yes, I would have gone there, and I hope most of you also, you know. It is, it is so important to, 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 uh, to, to remember, to always bear in mind this, this solidarity. It's so tragic how both sides are caught in this type of racism. And maybe I also already told you the story, but I like to repeat it, it's wonderful. You know who is for me the symbol of this hidden complicity of the two sides? Do you remember her, if you are old enough, Hannah Ashrawi, who was the public face of PLO some 10, 15 years ago? You probably noticed that now she practically disappeared. Yeah, you know why? When I was in Israel, I spoke with both sides, and they both told me a very sad story. It was a de facto coalition between hardline Zionists and hardline religious Palestinians. The religious Palestinians didn't like her. They claimed she's too much Western-looking woman educated in the United States. This is already, she speaks as a Western woman. She cannot really represent us. The Zionists' point was that, the same but with just inverted signs, that she's very bad for us because if Western media on CNN see her, they see a fluid in English, educated, intellectual woman, and this gives a totally wrong idea of what primitive Palestinians are and so on. So it worked. They concluded a pact, she disappeared. <laughs> it's crazy. The, the PLO lost its best uh, uh, propaganda asset, whatever. But okay, let's go on. Many things to say. Let's go on. Uh, uh, another, wha what is, I claim, at the root of all these false, uh, of all these false uh, divisions? Recently, in a, at a conference about communism in Seoul, Alessandro Russo, the Italian half-Maoist, has shown how he made a nice intervention when he pointed out how the radical left already in the 60s 
all the time oscillates between two extremes. Meta, what he calls metaclassism and hyperclassism. Metaclassism means that you try to draw a line of distinction outside class division. Uh, for example, multitude, people, unity of all progressive forces, or, uh, or uh, uh, marginal groups, whatever. You try to define the basic conflict outside the class coordinates. Of course, I'm opposed to it. I claim, my God, listen, whatever you say against Hollywood today, at least it's aware of the class struggle. And I say this positively. Can you imagine a recent blockbuster, it's difficult to find one, which is not openly about an extreme form of class struggle? Did you see Elysium? Can you imagine? Did you see, I didn't yet know, Hunger Games part two? It's class naive as it is. So I just laugh about sociologists who say we are beyond class struggle, where don't tell me, tell Hollywood. No, they, they obviously think we are in class struggle. Then hyperclassism is focusing on one part of the working class as the privileged revolutionary agent. Cognitariat, that is to say, new intellectual, immaterial workers, precariat, precarious, without permanent employment, illegal immigrants, and so on and so on. And I claim we find today also the same ambiguity in Tony Negri's work. On the one hand, it's multitude versus empire. That like, judging from the title. On the other hand, he still speaks about workers, productive workers against capital. But when you ask him, okay, what's the precise relationship between multitude and workers? It gets complicated, because sometimes Negri admits that today the most progressive digital capitalists are much more multitude than workers than the old working class. That, uh, that uh, the deteriorizing, the deterritorialization of today's most dynamic capital already generates the dimension of multitude. So the problem here is precisely, I claim the following one, that uh, where is the real division? This is a serious choice to be made in very simple terms. Is it, is it a, a, a division of, uh, is it a division, class division? Is it, an, as some Maoists would have put it, uh, national divisions in the sense that we have imperialist classes and uh, proletarian classes? Or is, it, or is it this Michel Foucault, Foucauldian view, multitude, or whatever versus power. I claim my solution is nonetheless that we should stick to the class division just to redefine what is to be a proletarian today. My position is here a classical one, that we should no longer focus just on the traditional working class, but include all those who are exploited today, workers, unemployed, unemployable, precariat, cognitariat, illegal immigrants, slum dwellers, rogue state, all that are excluded. Here I will show you what we can learn from the enemy. The enemy being, in this case, uh, Peter Sloterdijk. Yes, he may be a crazy conservative liberal, but 
in one of his last books, I forgot the title, something about global capitalism. Sorry? The world, the world in theory. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, 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 I think the basic thesis, thesis is quite a nice one. The thesis is that global capitalism is at the same time globe in the sense of cupola. That what is global is something which de facto excludes three quarters. And that this is from the very, and he puts it even as a very nice metaphor, how once you are inside the globe, you think you see everything, but you don't even perceive what is outside. And so that he, he basically, he provides, if I may be ironic, philosophical foundation for, for Elysium, the film, no? <laughs> more or less. No? He claims that, uh, 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 he claims that it's a very nice thesis, because he claims that global capitalism, which boasts of being open towards and so on, know that it's the most radical enclosure you can imagine. The dream of capitalism is to, uh, is to, is to, even architecturally, this is becoming, it's to, no longer a home, but a cupola, a, a, a sphere, a controlled space. And I think here we again can go into cinema, who knew this for a long time. Do you know the film, uh, I think, it, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me, but as far as I know, the first dystopia in this sense was the good old one, John Borman directed it with John Connery and Charlotte Rampling, Zardoz where you know the elite lives within, and then primitives outside. And then you have many movies along these lines, and so on and so on, uh, which is why I even think there is a progressive dimension in, uh, did you see, I didn't, I don't have time, but it must be interesting, uh, how is it called? The last TV series based on Stephen King, where also a small American town is cut off. The dome. The, the dome, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is the fundamental metaphor. And again, this is why I never agreed with this primitive criticism of, of, of Sloterdijk as some kind of a neo-fascist who, who wants, I don't know, to, to impose eugenic control and so on and so on. No, no, he, he, he gets the point here. So uh, now you will tell me, let's go, move a step forward. Now you will tell me, but nonetheless, even if we forget about all political divisions, there is one line of division that we can clearly enforce. It's a simple question of suffering. When people suffer in a terrifying way, there we have to be on their side. And I was attacked here when I wrote that short comment uh, that Syria is a pseudo-struggle. What I like so much is that, again, I was attacked from both sides. Some Israeli Zionist Lacanians, somebody called Marco or Marco Mouth, who is like every half a year he attacks me, at least every half a year, he made this mocking irony, you know, like, oh, Zizek says uh, Syria is a pseudo struggle. So there are pseudo death there, they are shot with pseudo guns, and so on and so on. At the same time, and I respect them, maybe I am wrong, at the same time, a Syrian leftist group attacked me. But I must here clarify my position. <coughs> I don't doubt that at the beginning of the revolt against Assad, that there was 
a genuine, I don't know how much emancipatory it was, but let's say liberating potential. I'm just saying that now, obviously, from what I read, there is a strong presence of religious fundamentalism, which in itself doesn't bother me. It can be progressive. The problem is that it's financed by, by uh, Turkey and especially by Saudi Arabia. Now, when somebody tries to convince me that in Syria there is a liberation struggle against Assad, I say, okay, but I somehow don't find it difficult to believe that Saudi Arabia is ready to finance a big liberation struggle, you know. What is happening is simply that I'm well aware that there are different orientations uh, <coughs> in the struggle against Assad, and by pseudo-struggle, I simply mean it's like World War I. Of course, it's horrible suffering, and so on, and so on. But it's not a struggle where we are compelled to take sides, the way it is. Maybe I'm wrong. If somebody shows me that the, let's call it secular, emancipatory, whatever we call it, side is getting strong enough, has a chance, of course we should fully support them. I'm just saying that the way it looks, this struggle is part of the struggle for influence between Shia and Sunni Muslims, and there I definitely don't want to take sides. If anything, if you ask me, I'm generally more Shia, slightly, gently, <laughs> more towards Shia, both, no? So, uh, but, so about suffering, you know why reference to suffering doesn't work? I was so often shocked by the excessive indifference towards suffering, namely when what people don't know is how even when media widely report about suffering, <clears throat> okay, sometimes this is a justification for military intervention, but often it's not, it's something I claim much more perverse going on that it is as if the very outrage at suffering turns us into, the, into immobilized, fascinated spectators of suffering. It's as if, you know, we like to be fed, you open up the news, ooh, again, starving people, women raped, and so on and so on, and you are somehow fascinated, and the more you learn about the horror, the less you are inclined to do something. I will give you an example of my own political past, my own, of my own ex-country. You know, the standard unfortunate motto of the Western liberal left, even radical left, was Serbs were the victim in post-Yugoslav war in the 90s. They were blamed for it, they lost, and so on and so on. No, I claim, except with the exception of Kosovo, they didn't lose, they won. Look, I remember in 91, Karadzic, the leader of Bosnian Serbs, said, all I want is half of Bosnia, in which there shouldn't be more than 10% non-Serbs. Look at the map today, in Dayton Agreement, Serbs got exactly that, 49%, when there are less than... So, where is, uh, but another thing is crucial. You remember when media were reporting oh, <coughs> snipers shooting on Sarajevo, starvation, and so on and so on. 
Now I read a memoir of Karadzic. Here he's telling the truth. He says sincerely, and it's a wonderful moment of truth of Karadzic. He, he says, but why? But we, Bosnian Serbs, were all the time aware that it would have been extremely easy for Western powers to, to, break, to, break, uh, to, to break the blockade the siege of Sarajevo. You know, because on one part, there was only the airport between the uh, city of Sarajevo and the territory held by Bosnian uh, Muslims. And that part was given by Serbs to the French. And the weird thing is that the French continued the Serb blockade. They didn't allow not even free passage of food and so on through it. Karadzic said, if international forces were to land one battalion, even less, on Sarajevo airport and claim, okay, it's open for food transport or not arms, we wouldn't be able to do anything. And that Karadzic gives another example. Western Serb Bosnia, Banja Luka, and Eastern Serb Bosnia were, had just one point of connection in north, close to uh, 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 Croat border, just one, like one, two kilometers uh, 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 passage. And Karadzic said, with one battalion, the Western powers could have occupied that part and we would be finished, Serbs. Why didn't they do it? So I'm not here blaming the Serbs. On the contrary, what I'm saying is that the Western sympathy with suffering Sarajevo was pure, absolute hypocrisy. It would have been so easy without even humiliating Serbs excessively whatsoever. It would have been so easy with one battalion and so on, a little bit of pressure, to open a humanitarian corridor for food and so on and so on. They didn't do it. So this is my problem, that when people celebrate, when you have this fascination by suffering, I claim that it's a very ambiguous thing that is going on, that usually the fascination with suffering is much, is much stronger. <laughs> Next point about false divisions. Okay, when you do have a revolt, what kind of revolt? I want to go now into, uh, into uh, uh, and uh, yes, maybe another point, and uh, in what sense, in what direction a revolt? Uh, uh, for example, again, this is all to illustrate how difficult for me at least it is to draw the accurate line of division. Uh, when Turks were protesting on Taksim Square and Gezi Park, their motto was dignity. And I have a problem with that motto. Uh, why dignity? Uh, I think this term, dignity, they were protesting for demanding dignity, is a proper motto insofar as it makes it clear that protests were not just about particular material demands, but about the protesters' uh, 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 freedom and uh, emancipation. Uh, the call for dignity, again, on the one hand, it referred to corruption and cheating. But more interestingly, it was directed what protesters were attacking was the patronizing ideology of Erdogan, the Turkish prime minister. 
The direct target of Turkish protests was neither neoliberal capitalism nor Islamism, but the personality of Erdogan, prime minister. The demand was for him to step down. Why? Which of his features was experienced as so annoying that it made him the target of protesters, both secular educated middle class protesters as well as anti-capitalist Muslim youth. Here I would like to quote from a thesis which will defend that doctoral thesis this week here, Bülent Somay, my Turkish uh, friend, his explanation. Quote, everybody wanted Prime Minister Erdogan to resign because many activists explained both during and after the resistance, he was constantly meddling with their lifestyles, telling women to have at least three children, telling them not to have caesarean sections, not to have abortions, telling people not to drink, not to smoke, not to hold hands in public, to be obedient and religious and so on and so on. And incidentally, I can see how annoying this is. I was told that when Erdogan was at a TV debate with others, and if someone smoked there, Turkey is still a normal country, you can <laughs> smoke them more. You, you know what happened? He stepped to that guy, pu pulled he, the cigarette out of his uh, mouth, uh, 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 and tapped him on his, uh, uh, his shoulder and says, don't do this, please. It's for your own good that you shouldn't do I mean, this makes you explode, of course. I go on. He, Erdogan, was constantly telling them what was best for them. This was, uh, ah, and his motto I like. You know what was, which was the electoral motto of this moderate Islamist party? Translated, shop and pray. No longer ora et labora, no longer work and pray, but shop and pray. Uh, Erdogan's utopia for Istanbul was a huge shopping mall and a huge mosque. He wanted to, and again, the, okay, let's go, but... Uh, Now, uh, where do I have a problem here? It's excellent to choose here the, the slogan, dignity. But I think that there is also a much more evil way to understand this slogan, dignity. As if you cheat us in too direct, brutal way, treat us respectfully, we want to be cheated, but in a more respectful way. You know what I mean? Like, we want to be manipulated, controlled, but the proper appearances should be maintained. And uh, I, claim, uh, I claim that, that uh, in a way, uh, 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 in a way, uh, this is a big problem for me, a big trap of contemporary politics, that you protest, but you protest in order to maintain the appearances. And here I'm with radical feminists, like here I agree with, okay, she's not a feminist, doesn't want to be, Judith Butler, who told me that precisely in our liberal permissive societies, domination is never presented as 
such. And the first step of liberation is to admit, to openly acknowledge domination as such, to enforce the master to act as one. You know, like, the example that already may be mentioned here, uh, today's boss doesn't like to be even called boss. He's a coordinator, manager, whatever, and he treats you as a friend. And I think the first step of liberation is to force your boss, like, don't bullshit me. You are the master, so behave like one. Don't give me the, the, the bullshit of I'm just coordinating things and so on. No, give me orders. Act as a master. <coughs> so, uh, so, uh, so again, here, you know, dignity, treat me with dignity, can also effectively in social relations mean, okay, go on, exploit me, be my master, but please allow me to save appearances. Don't humiliate me publicly. But, I, but what I would aim at is precisely the opposite. It's precisely to maintain, it's precisely we have to be, the beginning of liberation is that you are ashamed, like even at a very everyday level. Let's say a woman, her husband loves her, blah, blah, but sincerely, but she is exploited. Isn't the first step to become ashamed of her position, to become ashamed of being subordinated in a loving, loving, what appears to be a loving marriage, and so on and so on. So, uh, 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 another point I want to make apropos, uh, apropos uh, Turkey, which may be interesting, is first uh, the ambiguous role, uh, uh, Somai develops this very nicely, the ambiguous role of the demand of women to be veiled. You know that in Turkey, under the Kemalist regime, it was, I think, even up to a point, at least in public places, prohibited for the women to be veiled, no? So what happened is, and it was an extremely paradoxical conjunction. On the one hand, we had the paradox of, this is what was great about the Taksim Square protests. On the one hand, we have the impossible coalition of on the one hand, secular, middle-class, educated people who have enough of Muslim fundamentalism, but at the same time, on the other hand, deceived Muslim, anti-capitalist youth. The two were brought together. And this is what disturbed everyone. And I think this, precisely this coalition is <laughs> the only chance for Turkey. You know what these Muslim young anti-capitalists got it correctly? Uh, what uh, also my friend Sarugiri from India told me when I met him now in Seoul. He says that how wrong we are in the West where we think that we have normal capitalism, as it were. That is to say, capitalism combined with uh, multi-party democracy, uh, social permissivity, <laughs> consumerist freedom, and so on. And as if, you know, the Far East people are too stupid, not mature enough to get this, so they still need some uh, Asian values, uh, organic traditions, uh, religious background to be able to, to be able to endure capitalist modernization. As if here they are a step back, but uh, Sarogiri told me some wonderful things. He told me that in India, research shows that 
the most successful digital capitalists are usually in their private lives, it's a wonderful data, I claim, much more religiously in Hindu sense or whatever, fundamentalists than others. So here you have this paradox, and this is for me the truth of contemporary global capitalism. No, Asian countries are not developing are developing so fast, not in spite of the hold the tradition has over them, but because of it. Because the way, for example, a typical Indian digital venture capitalist, he will tell you he works 15 hours a day, but then if you ask him why are you doing, he will tell you to, out of respect of my family, to, to afford also education for my brother and so on and so on. So precisely the traditional ideology is totally transfunctionalized into the strongest motivation for being fully immersed in capitalist dynamics. So again, I claim that uh, this is crucial, again, that there is no tension here. It's not that we in the West have a full real capitalism, liberal capitalism while they are a little bit backwards. No, their capitalism is much more efficient. And uh, this is, I think, really a, a potentially dangerous dark phenomenon, namely that, uh, that something which may appear as a remainder of traditional past is the very support motivation of of, of, of capitalism. Uh, so in, uh, in other words, uh, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, uh, sorry, back to Turkey. And it's the same with Turkey. Somay, Bulen Somay in his thesis shows very nicely how this demand for women, Muslim women who demand to put to be allowed to put their veil on is not really a return to traditionalism. It may appear that, but it's a perverse way to assert the typically modern right of choice, of free choice. You know, you see the beauty of it, that something that may appear as a return to traditionalism is really the typically postmodern assertion of choice. I have the right to choose my way of life and so on and so on. Uh, he even, Somai uses a wonderful paradoxical expression. He says that the paradox is that uh, a veiled woman, she is veiled to remain invisible. But that, and under the Kemalist regime, you were allowed to be veiled, but if you remained invisible as veiled, you know, back in the family and so on. Now, what these women want, and that's the paradox of their position, is they want to be visible as veiled. You know, they use the veil, the very instrument of invisibility of your face to, be, to become visible as such. And I think, again, that uh, this is our future. Don't think that there is anything, uh, uh, that there is anything, uh, 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 that this is just a remainder of the past and so on and so on. Now I will go to the, sorry, I'm jumping a little bit today, uh, to, the, to the most problematic part for which I was reproached often, what's this with the idea that we need a new master? I am here a kind of, if you want, anthropological pessimist. What I claim is that especially in our late capitalist society, the way we are, as it were, 
condition is to be passive consumerist individuals. Of course, we are hyperactive, working all the time and so on, but not socially engaged. So to be kicked out of this way of life, you need a master. But what is a master? A master is not Erdogan. A master is not the one who tells you what to do, what not to do. As already emphasized here even, I think, the basic, what is the basic gesture of the master? Although I'm much more than my friend, but you critical of Mao Zedong, I think that there was an authentic moment when at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, Mao, Mao's message to the young students was, it is right to rebel. This is the lesson of a true master. A true master is not an agent of discipline and prohibition. His message is not, you cannot. It is, you can, what? You can do the impossible, what appears impossible within the coordinates of the existing constellation. And today, this means something very precise. You can think beyond capitalism and liberal democracy as the ultimate framework of our lives. A master is a kind of vanishing mediator who gives you back to yourself, who precisely delivers you to the abyss of your freedom. When you listen to a true leader, you discover what you want, or rather, what you always already wanted without knowing it. A master is needed because we cannot gain access to our freedom directly. The underlying paradox is that the more we live as free individuals with no master, the more effectively we are non-free. And I think, again, this is the lesson of a true master. You are confused, you don't know. The lesson, again, the message of a true master is you have the right to do it, do it. And the whole point is that now you will tell me, but why can't I decide this alone? No, I don't believe in this power of autonomy. Somebody has to, as it were, somebody has to kick you from the outside. Here, I will even do something extremely absurd and quote, although I hate him, I think he is worse than, uh, than, he is worse than, uh, than, uh, uh, he is worse than Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. You know his famous motto, uh, a lot of times I quote him, people don't know what they want until you show it to them. This is his famous motto. But I think he meant it in a correct way because his point was not people, ordinary consumers don't know what they want, we, big industry plan, we will tell them what they want. No, this would have been the primitive pseudo-master, you know like the Stalinist master. He knows, a Stalinist master knows better than the people what people really want, so he tell them on your force. No, Steve Jobs, uh, when he was asked how much inquiry into what customers want Apple uses, Steve Jobs snapped back, none. It's not the customer's job to know what they want. We figure out what we want. But you saw the beauty. He doesn't say, we figure out what the customers want. He says, we figure out what we want. And incidentally, I think it was, he was right, because another thing that my Indian friend Sarugiri told me, I like this. You know what are like 
farms. Like, like, not it looks like, but like, like, I like it. Like farms. In India, he told me, thousands of impoverished intellectual workers are employed in what they call like farms. They are miserably paid to sit the whole day in front of a computer and endlessly press the button like on pages which ask the visitors or consumer, you know, when you go to usually they ask you, did you like it or not? There are, there are thousands of people who are doing this all the day. Why? To raise the average, you know, so that then you look at this site and say, oh my God, if, if, if half a million people like it, there must be something in it. No, no, they are paid to do just this. And I think this is how much I trust uh, uh, this, uh, this, the, this kind of uh, investigations and so on. But again, Note the surprising tone of Jobs' argumentation. After denying that customers know what they want, Jobs doesn't go on with the expected direct reversal. It's our task, the task of creative capitalists, to figure out what customers want and then show it to them. No, he continues, we figure out what we want. And that's how a true master works. You don't try to guess what people want. You simply obey your own desire and then it is to the people to decide if you will follow it or not. In other words, the master's power stems from his fidelity to his desire. And I, I, again, I think that, you, I hope you saw the distinction. This is why I think a true master is not an oppressive guy. He doesn't tell you what you want. He tells you what he wants, what he really wants. His only privilege is to clearly know what he wants. And then it's up to you to follow him or not. And again, I don't see anything oppressive or wrong in this. Let's face it. Didn't all revolutionary leaders, when they were authentic leaders, work exactly in this way? You clearly disclose what you want. You know what you want. I claim most of us ordinary people we don't know what we want. That's the basic lesson of psychoanalysis. You want something, but you don't really, well, you know what's the, this is the great lesson of psychoanalysis. You know, I often use these examples of how, I will tell you another dirty story. It happened to a friend of mine, but he would have killed me if I were to tell you. What is our common attitude? I had a friend in United States who was cheating his wife and then at a certain point, he decided that he will join mistress, his mistress, his true love, and abandon his wife. So he sat into a car and drive towards another town, suburb of a big city, American, where his mistress lived. On the way there, there was a storm, and then his windshield broke down. And he called like crazy different mechanics. No one came. It was a storm. So he couldn't have reached his wife, so he called a taxi there, still close to his home, and came back to his returned home. No? And what I like so much is how obviously he really didn't want to leave his wife. And he was just waiting for something like Storm to introduce some trouble. And when I told him this, he told me, no, 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 I really wanted to. But then he admitted to me that uh, he felt a sense of relief, you know, when the storm started. And I told him, in psychoanalytic terms, you are guilty. I told him, of course, you didn't plan the storm, no? 
But you are guilty because libidinally you enjoy, like you profited from it, no? You are, so I think, I think, I think this, is, this is how we are. For example, no, most of the men, and I'm sorry for the male chauvinist uh, 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 accent, I'm not good enough to judge if it goes also the other way around. Most of the men who have a wife and a mistress, usually you dream that you want a mistress. But when there is a real chance of getting, no, the usual story is even, but then you lose your wife and you drop also your mister. You know what I mean? Like, it's this type of confusion where you organize all your life about really, I really want that, but it's a total panic when finally you get a chance of getting that. This is, I think, the situation of most of us. Or, I claim, I'm coming back to politics here, we want freedom. Democracy. No, we don't, I claim. We want, ah, very precise, we really want appearance of freedom, as I developed in my books. What we want is to live in a society where it appears as if we really decide through election, but we want to be told what we really want. No? We want to be given a choice where it's clear how to choose and so on and so on. Don't ever underestimate, again, the power of, the power of uh, appearance. So, again, uh, when I say we need a master, because I was accused of stupidities that I uh, advocate new Stalin and so on and so on, no. All I'm saying is that somebody, something has to kick us out, not in the sense of telling us what <coughs> to do, but of, you know, because when you know what's the problem? The problem is this one. When you accuse me of being kind of propagating some kind of totalitarian idea when I say we need a master, this would be my answer to you. You imply that without a master you are free. No, you are not. That's what I deny to you. Precisely when you feel yourself an ordinary consumerist individual, you are not free here. And the function of the master is just to give you a kick, as it were. And to as it were, give you back to yourself, to confront you with your freedom. The master's function is to tell you, you are free, you can do it. There was even a tiny authentic moment, I claim, even at the beginning of Obama's presidency, you know, at first election, his motto was, yes, we can. And it's very good motto, yes, we can, that's it. Now, even now, ah, another problematic thing that I will repeat. It's so fashionable today to be totally against Obama, you know, like some, stu some stupid pseudo-radical leftists criticized him expecting what? As if when Obama was elected, what did they expect? That he will introduce socialism in the United States or what? <laughs> but, uh, you know, nonetheless for me, I know he made all the compromises, gave no illusions about him, but I claim the debate about universal health care is important. He obviously there disturbed some core element of American ideology. And this he did it, you have to admit it. Because otherwise you cannot explain the incredible hatred towards him. Like, you remember with this shutdown of the, of the government. My God, just for that point, healthcare, the American right was ready to, to sabotage, to ruin the functioning of the entire state. Obviously, he did it. 
So again, that idea, you know that all of a sudden you are, you are delivered from your cynical resignation. That yes, that experience, yes, I can do it. That's all. That, and then what you do after with the master, it's your problem. I think the good idea is that one thing get moving, you, you kill. That's what I would propose. No? Because, you know, the problem with the master is that, you know, usually it's diffi very difficult to be a master. You know what I mean? Because, okay, you deliver this message and then we people are sinful, you know. Then you start to think, but maybe I really know better and so on, no? So, but again, you know, it's the same as in psychoanalysis, my God. Master is just a figure of transference. He doesn't know. He just delivers you. He just delivers you to your freedom. If we, you allow me to go, nonetheless, because I have so many uh, uh, other things to say, uh, if you allow me to add another point where I see the difficulty of division. Finally, I, I advise you to read this novel. It's, I think, one of the great novels of 20th century. Julien Grac, G-R-A-C-Q. Julien Grac, a French author, uh, the, uh, the novel from early 50s, I think. Uh, the original title is Le Rivage de Sirte. Sirte is some uh, 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 country in the south of an, some uh, uh, shore in the uh, imaginary country. The English title is The Opposing Shore. It's a very strange novel, and why it's important? Because I don't know if you know, this novel is the origin of Alain Badiou's famous statement, Mieux un désastre qu'un désastre. Better a disaster, the catastrophic outcome of an event, than a non-eventful survival. It's, it takes place in an imaginary country, which is basically Italy or Senna. It's called the country. It's an alternate reality. They have cars, but no electricity. Okay, it's basically a, a city-state, like enlarged Venice. The point is that on the south of this country, there is a shore, and on the other side of the shore, it's a barbarian primitive country called Fargestan. And these two countries are in a state of war, but they never fight. For 300 years, there is just a tension. And then Aldo, the hero of this novel, goes down and bombs with his ship, his uh, border commander there, bombs a Fargestan city, something like that, knowingly provoking a war. And he knows that Orsena, his country, will probably be devastated. But his idea is that Orsena is living for hundreds of years in this simple satisfaction, nothing is happening, and it's better to something must happen. It's better war disappearance than nothing happening. Now, the horror is, the problem is how to read this. Of course, liberals and left liberals read this as an implicit propaganda for fascism. Like, you know, people should me not be too immersed in their consumerist everyday pleasures, uh, better even if it's catastrophe, but something must happen. Uh, uh, Alain, but you told me that, you know, his, again, the empirical origin of his formula, mieux vaut un désastre qu'un désastre, better a disaster than a non-eventful survival, originated 
after he read this book. But uh, I find it, and uh, but you also know this that it's you know that's the whole problem. When we are in relatively satisfied, we live a relatively satisfied life in a easy, nothing is happening, in an impassive uh, consumerist, nothing is happening, peaceful life. Uh, is it really that anything that disturbs this is better or not? That is to say, uh, uh, here I think that Badiou is sometimes too seduced by this motive of just the things happen even if it's a catastrophe, better than nothing. For example, I remember I had a personal private, we just talked, polemic with him about Yugoslavia in early 90s, no? And he told me, you know, it would have been better for Milosevic to win over you Slovenes. I asked him why. He said it would have been more interesting. Something at least would have happened. No? Then, okay, my answer to him was, well, fuck you, then let's go to the end and say uh, uh, it was much better for Hitler to win than, uh, you know, it was certainly, like, imagine European history if for some reason in the early 30s, uh, I don't know, the, the Nazi movement would have disintegrated it would have certainly been much less interesting, no? But fuck you for such interest where, where uh, 40 people million die to make things more interesting, you know? So, but uh, uh, my, uh, my point here would have been that uh, that uh, what I would have, yes, okay, I will put it in these terms. The true choice, I think, is not, as Badiou said, better uh, disaster than uh, desetre, non-being. Non-being means for him simple animal life, nothing happening. Uh, the, uh, the true choice is between pseudo-event and non-being. Like, what is better, fascism or ordinary bourgeois society? This is the true choice. And but you sometimes sounds as if just to kick things into movement, he would prefer even that. For example, he wrote some things which are true, but nonetheless, for me, a little bit ambiguous about Jean-Marie Le Pen. He said he's the only interesting politician in France today. The only one, and which is true. He was the only one who introduced passion, dynamic, Okay, fuck you, but what kind of passion and dynamic, no? So again, uh, I think that, that nonetheless we should avoid this dilemma of the novel. You know that uh, the thing to ask is not what is better, this peaceful consumerist life or some event, even if it's a pseudo-event which disturbs it. The problem is, I would hear put it in classical Marxist terms. The problem is, is this peaceful life really so peaceful? I would like to learn more about this country or Sena. Where is class struggle there? Are all people sad? You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe, the whole maybe the whole perspective is wrong. So what I'm saying is that, and this is our problem today. Today, 
unfortunately, I'll put it this way, one of the temptation is the temptation of we are living in, at least still recently, we are living in times which are too peaceful and so on, we need some dynamics, yes, but there is a, there is a dynamic and a dynamic. Maybe I should stop slowly because what, yeah, yeah, immediately, what I, one point more that I wanted to do is the most problematic one, I wanted to focus on the problem of national struggles today, because another false division today often is the exact status of national resistance, struggles for national liberation, and maybe I will do this two days from now, just to announce it to you. What I really wanted to show is how not only problematic, but totally opposite were here, uh, not so much Marx as Engels. You know that Engels said in 48, referring to my nation and all Southern Slav, that these miserable nations deserve only to perish in, he uses even German word, in the Holocaust of the New World Revolution. He is absolutely explicit. His idea is the only thing that matters is the revelation of Western Europe. And then Lenin, uh, I mean, uh, this, uh, this topic of which I think is not yet resolved. How to mix national liberation? What's your problem here? Okay, sorry? Okay, sorry, I was confused today. Wednesday, more systematic. Excellent. No, no, this was one of your most uh, systematic talks in a long time. So you stuck to your text. That was excellent. Thank you very much. So uh, we will take uh, perhaps two or three questions at a time, so that you know, give uh, Slavoj time to consider uh, their thoughts and then come back. So Maria, you go first. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, mine are just two short comments. First about the film that neither of us has seen, but we both want Which to one? see, The Hunger Games. Yeah. Because uh, and the motto, I mean, one of the reasons I, I think we should see it as soon as possible is uh, the motto actually summarizes your uh, uh, your lecture today, because the, it, the main thing it says is know your enemy. So it's about distinguishing between false divisions and fake, uh, fake radicalism. The enemy is there, Donald Sutherland, I think. No. Ah, yes, exactly. He is. No, he exactly. is. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the main point I want to make is about uh, the master. I mean, you rehabilitate the figure of the master, and basically. What you just uh, the way you describe the master today is you collapsed him into the analyst. So do we only have like three discourses nowadays? We don't have, you know, we have. I mean, basically, I mean, even when you said, oh, it's the same psychoanalysis. The master is the one that you have a transference to. No, uh, the, in psychoanalysis, the person you have a transference to is the analyst, not the master. So I'm just wondering why. I mean, the way you describe the master today is it's almost like he says an ethical subject that you have a transference towards and doesn't tell you what to do, but have, you know, has his own idea about what should be done for himself, like Steve Jones. No, I should, I know, so, I was, just to answer briefly to this one. No, I know I should have alerted this more, but I nonetheless think there are, there are differences here, because the analyst nonetheless puts you to work in the sense of uh, analytic work and so on and so on, but uh, what I meant, uh, I mean, like, uh, take an authentic revolutionary leader. It would be nonetheless too much to say that he is somehow analyzing uh, the people or whatever. No, I think it's not so much a continuous process. Transference lasts. It's just 
this experience of this enabling experience of my God, but I can do it. This is for me the crucial. My problematic thesis is that for this you need a master. I'm here opposed to the standard idea of autonomous subjectivity that that the experience of freedom is no, I don't need I can do it alone. No, at that point exactly you need a master, I claim. You need you need to be because again the whole point is that alone you are not free. You are not free alone. You are, you are, when you are without a master, you are precisely most enslaved. I think you need an analyst, not a master. Sorry? I still think you need an analyst, not a master. Who? Me as a person? Yeah. No, 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 no. I, maybe I need it because I don't want it, you know. Like, I, 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 I'm more and more, I'm personally, because first as a person, I find it so disgusting. Maybe this is a way of what Freud calls Widerstand, resistance to analysis, you know. But like, if you look deep into me, you will probably discover some shit, you know. <laughs> some stupid, dirty desires and so on. Why? This is disgusting, I think. I, and in my Stalinist universe, there would certainly be no analysts because people would work hard for socialism. They would not have time to do this bullshit, you know. Like, I, sorry. sorry. <laughs> First of all, thank you very much. I got a great deal out of that, so thank you for that. You spent a lot of time on Syria and the, the surrounding context of... Are you Scottish? Yes, I am. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. You know why your solidarity? No, just immediately... Well, we're in dark shirts. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Because, you know, when Yugoslavia was falling apart, this is the racism of British leftists. Now they sympathised at least some of them with you. Scottish, they, they don't? No, no, I just noticed that the same friends of mine who, when Yugoslavia was falling apart, were telling me, but you are crazy, you should remain together, the world is coming together. Ah, we don't have the right, you have the right. No. Sorry, let's go on. You spent some time looking at Syria. Do you have a view on uh, Owen Jones and Jeremy Scahill refusing to uh, be on the platform with uh, this nun at the Stop the War conference on Saturday? No, no, we don't know about it. So, sorry, I don't know about it. What happened there? No, no, but just, just wait a minute, briefly. I mean, what, what happened there? What happened there? No, it's just in case you knew. I don't to take time away from everybody else, but I'm sure you can mention it later on in the week. But, you know, no, 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 no. Yeah. When you get into national struggles and so on, we'll discuss that. Yeah. The gentleman over there. Uh, could you tell uh, the difference between uh, this new kind of master? And if this master is uh, equivalent to an analyst discourse in Lacan, and uh, which is the difference between the master and the superego uh, injunction? This one, next talk, I will go can into we, it. Can we uh, have you to uh, just uh, Sometimes you say on one hand that uh, we live in, 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 you don't say it just like that, but we live in, in a better world. Uh, it's uh, much le less poverty than other uh, times and things like that. But on the other hand, to support communism and this kind of uh, mm. change, uh, uh, maybe it's this paradox, it's in the core of what you were mm. developing at the end of this. Uh, mm. Could you uh, explain uh, okay. this? Let us thank the lady also. 
now thinking about the way you described the master, I'm trying to um, understand better an expression that I grew up with in Romania, which says that the student's uh, responsibility is to surpass the teacher, therefore yeah. the master. So thank you for that. Because but now, well, how did you know what interests me? Maybe you should answer it. Don't be mad. It's extreme, but uh, you know, when you have a nice thought like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will let her finish. You have a master, Yeah. No, no. What I wanted to ask you, I wanted to, you to go even further on. You know, when, you know what interests me. When you, when, when somebody told you this, the lesson of the, the task of the pupil is to surpass the teacher. Who told you? Who told you this? A teacher. Socrates, Socrates. No, because what I'm interested is, you know, I typically imagine a teacher who tells you this, but then just try really to do it, you know what I mean. <laughs> because I always have these problems, for example, talk off. For, <laughs> for example, when I, well, uh, Avital Ronel, my half-friend from New York, even now hates me because she gave a talk at SASFE, saying that every pupil has to rebel against a master, that you have to betray your master, no? And she dwelt on Nietzsche uh, betraying, moving over uh, uh, Wagner. And then Alain Babiou, in a stroke of a genius, asked her a simple question. So, because her master undoubtedly, she laughed him, blah, blah, is Derrida. What about you betraying Derrida? And she was, it was such an embarrassment. She became pale and she said, well, maybe my formula is not quite universal. You cannot apply it in such a mechanical way. Then another guy, Derrida, and forgot his name, who was there, said, no, with Derrida is a unique master. You don't have to betray him because in a self-critical spirit, he was all the time already betraying himself, you know, and so on. You know, like, for me, a true analytic master would have been the one, and that would be the test of the master, who would really be able to say, yes, now you did really move over me. But they are very, very rare. You know, they cheat mostly. So that's what interests me, like, like to see this in action. Did you ever meet a master who congratulated you to overcome him? <laughs> I had a private teacher who, uh, who also gave this advice. Yeah, but uh, like, uh, what? I didn't manage to see the result of that. Yeah, but that's what I mean. So there was another. Uh, I, I, I just wanted to ask you how your view on the master corresponds with Hegel's view, because yeah, he's the one who kind of entered this whole discourse. Uh, oh my God, this is maybe, here I agree with you, too complex a question. You know why? Because I claim that Hegel's dialectic of, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, master and servant is, um, I think it's a much more complex one, especially to avoid, I'm more and more convinced, is the simplified Kozhev version to project into Hegel a kind of uh, proto-Marxism, you know, that worker wins. No, worker does not win. Nobody wins there. It's way too simple to read it that in the short term, master wins, but then in the long term, through mediation or whatever, uh, worker wins and so on and so on. No, if you look at it, uh, because uh, the result of this whole dialectic is then a passage to thought and it's a stoicism. And 
a stoic is precisely a master who is a master of nothing, you know. You just have your freedom, but the world is out there doing whatever it wants. And so you don't care. You don't care about the world. And you don't care. Yes, this is the, the result. So it's, it's again, very... It's, uh, all I can say is that uh, both uh, the, the big readings of Hegel are usually... Are, are, uh, are usually wrong, but, but Hegel was definitely aware of something. That, again, you need, that you need an external kick, as it were. Because, again, for the worker, if we accept the standard Kozevian reading, that uh, a worker, through his work, liberates himself, yes, but you need a master. But you know where this would be a good text or even book to read. Things get more complicated. What some people try to do, if you try to connect this master and servant, not slave, dialectic, with the position of woman in Hegel. Because on the one hand, Hegel may appear anti-feminist, you know, like uh, uh, women should be limited to private life, blah, blah. Uh, on the other hand, what he says about Antigone, it's much more ambiguous when he speaks about eternal irony of... Uh, woman as the eternal irony of men and so on and so on. It, it would be interesting to, again, to systematically transpose the dialectic of, uh, of uh, domination and servitude to, to sexual difference, no? So okay. again, that's why I think that the way to move through Hegel, beyond Hegel, is not to move in a Deleuzean way to another domain, but just to think Hegel to be more Hegelian at crucial points than Hegel himself. That's why, allow me just to finish with this, we are not yet at one. No, no. Yeah, immediately. Yeah. That's why, for example, with all my criticism of Marx, I agree that Marx's great achievement was to extend Hegelian approach also on the topic of capital. Because there Hegel wasn't Hegel. Hegel didn't... Hegel didn't really have a sense of what capital is, capitalism. His notion is still Adam Smith's notion of cooperative, simple division of labor and so on. Hegel didn't, didn't see the Hegelian dimension of capital. And if you just do that, everything explodes and so on and so on, you know. Sorry, but... Uh, so we have one about question there. and one there. And one there. Okay. Uh, yes, well, there were people who asked. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So, uh, I like to connect two points. Firstly, your reference to Engels and his outburst. Which is systematic, not just once. Yeah. He did it at least three times, 30 yeah. years in between. So, uh, I don't want to label. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 so, Engels. Secondly, the use of the word, uh, of the expression, fuck off, which is, I would think, part of Engels problem with uh, English language and English Does language. he use it? In English? Because he was, uh, of course, at that time, when it came to class-based analysis, uh, his analysis of England, uh, Britain, yeah. was, uh, of course, informed by also, not, not only by his uh, daily operations in London, but also by his relations with the family of Marx, and I especially point out the family of Marx, because with the family of Marx, here we are the Hegelians, uh, <coughs> uh, mm -hmm. utterly uh, uh, 
embraced in Hegelian world, not in Nietzsche, mm -hmm. yeah, which is very yeah, important. Yeah. They were not salami tacticians, uh, lots of values, mm -hmm. but there was just a clear delineation. The way yeah, yeah. So now, uh, 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 Marx, his life, of course, uh, his, her interests were important <coughs> within the European context of creating the, not only the Westphalian yeah, case, yeah, yeah. but a whole notion of protocol which informed the various foreign offices of Europe, uh, especially including also the power of the one mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Fakov, Hegel, uh, Engels, Fakov, uh, the family of Marx, yeah, the third one, uh, they uh, accusing you of being a Stalinist. Yeah. Uh, so at that point I have to bring in the British Film Institute. Because there you have exactly that transformation of knowledge uh, uh, of having a, a shallow understanding of Marx and Marxism yeah. uh, and being more intensely Lacanized <coughs> uh, uh, and more or less than following the uh, basically US strategy of anti-Marxism via uh, the, the French school of, uh, of, 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 of engineering philosophy. Now, uh, therefore, when you personally, uh, uh, I hear, refuse to look at your own films where you are included, yeah. I would crucially say, uh, 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 please, uh, firstly, and re-enter polite society, don't say fuck all. Sorry for uh, yeah, okay. uh, yeah, uh, 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 and, and before then in the film they cut Stalin coming out of a plane of yeah. that world and coming out and you following them. That is the reason that you are all such a No, but uh, first, uh, first so about... Without the, the skill of those uh, Nietzschean salami tacticians with the help of the French school of, uh, of, of philosophy to avoid... Uh, dialectics, variants uh, would say, but uh, I would say uh, to avoid yeah, universality, because they think they, they own it. Okay, this would be too complex to answer because first, uh, first, uh, this universality. I first, I don't think there is a homogeneous French school. I see great opposition. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I, for example, Lacan, together with some others, is always pro-universal against Foucauldian nominalism and so on. So this, the, the, but what interests me is really what you mentioned about uh, fuck off. Now, I like to use it because I'm in England, and I think that the English and are masters of are masters of being very vulgar and aggressive, but in a coldly formal, formal polite way. And I think it's easy to be vulgar in a vulgar way. Every idiot can do this. You just talk dirty. Okay. It's easy to be polite in a polite way. It's a little bit more difficult to be to be uh, vulgar in a polite way. But you 
English can do it. But the true art of civilization for me is to be polite in a vulgar way. And that's what I try to practice. That you use dirty words and so on, but if you do it in a correct way with friends, in a way, it's not, not only it's not considered really brutal vulgar, it's in a way the highest assertion of friendship. Ah, another thing I will tell you now. This one is crucial. What I really hate, and here I agree with you, is people who are publicly polite, but privately then explode. I think our duty is to be the opposite. And I am like this with my friends. It's my old joke that I'm telling, but it's true. For me, being vulgar is a matter of great tact how to do it publicly. It's not something spontaneous. Like I noticed, maybe you know the story with my friends. When I meet a friend, we start, it's a ritual. We start insulting each other. Like my standard line is the Serb one, you know. I will dig your mother up uh, out of her grave and fuck her into her sagging pale breast and so on. We, then after 10 minutes of this, we, after 10 minutes of this, we look at each other and we say, listen, enough of this. We did our duty. Now we can talk like normal people kindly and so on. This is civilization for me. You treat being vulgar not as, oh, now I'm furious, I explode. No, you treat being vulgar as a sad duty, you have to do it, ritual. And then, and I spoke with, that's why I always like them, the hardline, uh, 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 how do you call them, sadomaso lesbians, no? They are, when I speak with them privately, the kind, because, you know, all this shit they put into their ritual, weeping with nails, whatever, each other, and then finally they can be beautiful, kind persons <laughs> that they are, you okay, know. Enough, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I must uh, confess that I have submitted to anti-Greek uh, attacks from Zizek now for 20 years, so in the sense of I, I know how to respond. He's just no, I changed the line. He's yeah. half Mongol. He's yeah. not even Greek. <laughs> but that's another story. Yeah, because he's a slave. That's why he wants to turn the masculine ah. slave dialectic. I know. This is, this is scientific <laughs> etymology, no? Slavs <laughs> comes from slave, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 So, could you keep it uh, short? So, two rounds. I don't know if we can, but just just very briefly speaking to the uh, the warfare myth that you were talking about of the trenches. I thought and those in between. The, yeah, yeah. Between side, yes. The, oh, you know more about it than we No, I was. Uh, <laughs> I did, but uh, I, I was kind of wondering because I know that you just uh, edited a series with uh, with a fellow out of Sheffield on Ernst Bloch and his idea of utopia. And I wonder if the notion of utopia ties into this uh, battlefield myth in some way. Maybe this is too big of a topic, but it just seemed to me that there was some okay. notion. Very brief, very brief. I only want to know if this master, your, your master, is in some way related uh, with, uh, for example, the, the antique masters in Greece, these masters that, for example, uh, <coughs> uh, describe very well in the narrative of the subject, like the master of the Pernelega Fauton, so I want to know if there are any relation with these kind of masters. Uh, if not, well, I don't know. Which no. is the difference of the characteristics? Here I would maybe, first, second, disappoint you. My idea is more the Kierkegaardian distinction between uh, genius and apostle. And uh, my favorite Kierkegaard is that philosophical fragments where he develops how the, the ancient have geniuses, creative guy who knows, 
and Christians have apostles who are just like he, he describes in terrifying terms Jesus Christ. Uh, I like this Kierkegaard. He says, Jesus Christ is like a postman. He was carrying a message, but he was too stupid to know uh, what this message... You know, like a postman brings you a letter, but usually a postman doesn't know what's the message, no? And he says, Christian teachers are like apostles. They just carry a message. They are nothing in themselves. I'm here more... I was more thinking about this. Uh, uh, Christian guys, uh, uh, back to a uh, block. You know what's my problem? I don't know enough about Ernst Bloch, and I basically just gave my name to that volume. Although what I do like in Bloch is this idea, is his obsession to find, to locate everywhere the utopian dimension. You know, even in, for example, in popular literature, in the lowest literature, it's even not known here. When I was young, everyone was reading it. Karl May, a unique writer, a German from late 19th century who wrote, invented Western novels about his hero, his old Chatterhand friend with an Indian Apache, uh, uh, Apache chief, uh, Vinetu. And it's absolutely mythical in Middle Europe, but nowhere outside Middle Europe. So again, I do... I do appreciate uh, this in Bloch, and also his idea of not yet, of reality as not fully, not fully, not fully, uh, not fully ontologically constituted. I do buy all that, but unfortunately, I don't know enough about Bloch. Okay, last two questions right here and one at the back. You, you, you go first because you've been asking something. In the last lecture of yours that I attended here, I think it was. Uh, somehow a response yeah. to your critics. And you were speaking about the form of the social bond or the symbolic link. And you, and you said uh, something that confused me about how it had the form of the social bond that wasn't somehow predicated on the authority of the big other or the master. Mm -hmm. Now today you seem to be saying that this master is, is vitally necessary somehow. And I wondered if, if I'm just confused or whether these two things are somehow happening. No, uh, oh my God, this is again a difficult. What I would say is that obviously I am introducing, uh, how to put it, subdivisions. I'm trying to subcategorize the notion of a master. And I'm sorry I don't have time to do it today because I claim that what is a master signifier for Lacan? Of course, it's always a, re a reflective signi, like you fill in a gap. You just give a name to that which originally doesn't have a name. Uh, like, for example, in classical example for Spinoza, God is a master signifier. Why? Because we simply name that which escapes our knowing and so on, all that stuff. But, and then, then I gave many examples, I will not repeat them. But my point is that for Lacan always emphasizes that the master signifier can be with a subtle shift, it can be transformed into what Lacan calls signifier of the bare inconsistent other. That is to say, signifier of the inconsistency of the other, which is, again, almost the opposite. You, you know how the same signifier can, can be 
something which, as it were, fascinates us, covers up the inconsistency, or can be the very signifier of this inconsistency. In this sense, for example, in traditional Marxism, I claim it still can work, class struggle is a master signifier. Class struggle. So again, I would have said that, uh, now, uh, it all depends on what do we mean? Already, capitalism is, in a way, social order with no master in the traditional sense. But, you know, the whole point of Lacan, and here he is very modern, is how the type of discourse which replaces, supplements the master's discourse, university discourse, has at its truth the master signifier, so that it's still dominated by master signifier. And, and uh, the way I read Lacan's uh, uni uh, uh, discourse of the analyst is precisely that there we also have master signifier, but it's uh, at the fourth place of production, which means that the master signifier is brought out as what it is, and so on and so on. So again, uh, my point precise to what you are saying is that uh, we have to be here much more precise. And the key of the problem, I cannot develop it now, but because the, I may sound confused for a simple reason, because I am confused because this is a crucial problem, is something which I try to isolate in some pages towards the end of my big fat book, uh, Less Than Nothing, is, uh, you know that what Lacan got it is that it's not enough to have, for example, to have a non-relationship. For example, when Lacan says, il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel, there is no relationship. What Lacan got it, and it's a very speculative Hegelian point, is that it's not enough to say there is no relationship. If we say there is no sexual relationship, this can still be some kind of a boring eternal wisdom, you know. The two sexes cannot ever be reconciled. There is eternal struggle between masculine, feminine. But the, there is nothing subversive in it. This is bullshit. But what Lacan says is something very precise. He moves imperceptibly before, from there is no relationship to there is a no relationship. That is to say, the non-relationship itself has to be embodied in an element which stands for it. For example, in anti-Semitism, Jew is a non-relationship, not real Jew, anti-Semitic figure of the Jew, is a non-relationship embodied. Because, you know, the Jew stands in for non-relationship, in the sense that in anti-Semitic vision, it is the cause of the class struggle and so on and so on. And so again, what Lacan calls object A is always to be read in this way. For example, this is why, and now we come to the interesting, crucial problem. Class struggle is never a pure class struggle, not even ideally, just one class against the other. There is always some complication, some element which doesn't fit it. And this is what makes it class struggle. You take this excessive element out and you no longer have class struggle. So again, uh, uh, what I would have said here is that the difficulty is how to think this exceptional signifier without reading it in the traditional way as the master signifier. 
What I don't, but the problem, there is another very deep aspect to it here, philosophical. I think that Lacan is trying to break out of this, let's call it, productive paradigm. By this, I mean, for example, what Deleuze does in his anti-Oedipus, that you define a field of some original productivity, flux of desire, multitude, and then you account for hierarchy or whatever as a secondary formation. You know, all these classical oppositions, for example, production representation, production, the original site, productive site, and then the alienated hierarchic representation, and then the problem becomes how to reassert productivity and so on and so on. I think Lacan wants to break out of this. His idea is that in a way, what representation, some excess of representation is the condition of uh, production and so on. He wants to complicate the image here. So again, it's too complex for me to give you a full answer now. Thank you very much, Slavoj.